welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, the ripoff podcast within a podcast that is now a spinoff podcast, where I ask Sam questions about the episodes of Star Trek that we watched this week. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. Nanu nanu. This is our final episode of watching TOS episodes of Trek. How does that make you feel having seen the not the last two episodes of the original series, but the last two that we are going to watch for this podcast? No. So you want to watch more? Cut! All right. Well, with that answer, I guess we will move straight into our first episode that we are discussing, Requiem for Methuselah which is the 19th episode of the third season of TOS, written by Jerome Bixby, who we have definitely discussed before on this podcast, and directed by Murray Golden. It was first broadcast on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1969. The Enterprise is in the grip of a deadly outbreak of Rigelian fever. Why have I, like, unerringly chosen the pandemic storylines for you? I didn't even know that before I picked all these episodes, but somehow I have picked like all the ones that are about pandemics. This is like the time that every YA novel I picked had to do with somebody dying and it was all about grief, right? No, I mean, I think the real answer is I know that you tried to avoid the notoriously bad episodes, the repetitive episodes, and then... I mean, you were just looking to break repetition. So the ones that you were left with, I, I guess you just got unlucky. I guess the sci-fi writers in the 60s were concerned about the right thing. Good for them. Anyway, the Enterprise has a little onboard pandemic, just a little one. And they are in desperate need of the mineral Rytalin for their antidote. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to a nearby uninhabited planet to acquire some, but find that the planet is not so uninhabited. They meet Flint, a strange human who wishes to be left alone, his ward, Rena Kepik, and his robot protector-slash-butler, M4. Flint promises to help them refine the Rytalin, but it quickly becomes apparent that he is not what he appears to be. What were your first thoughts about this episode, Sam? Is it a pandemic? because they're in a closed society on the spaceship and so like it's uncontrolled throughout the whole society is that is that why we would call it a pandemic okay this episode says what lengths will you go to end a pandemic and unlike today kirk says whatever it takes what a difference 50 years make. this the, the way we're trying to solve things now is very much like Flanders' beatnik parents who have tried nothing, man. I don't know. I, I mean, there's definitely a moral imperative for Kirk to do what it takes to get what they need. And it's not like I'm saying, you know, two and a half years ago, you watch this episode and you don't agree with him. Because I, I certainly do. I think that he needs to do what he needs to do. But I guess I think watching this episode now, my patience is even less. Kirk does come across as really aggressive at the beginning of the episode, much more so than we have come to expect, perhaps, from a member of the Federation slash the captain of the Enterprise. There's this really great moment where, I mean, he tells Flint, like, if you don't give it to us, we'll take it. And then Flint has M4, like, 
lasers, phasers, whatever, trained on them. And Kirk has Scotty train the phasers of the Enterprise on their exact location. So that way, if Flint doesn't give them what they want, they're all just going to die there. And my favorite part is that Flint is like, you're bluffing. And Spock is basically like, I wouldn't call him on that. Because again, this goes back to what Spock did the other week that we talked about. If you know that you're dead anyway, might as well, might as well. I guess it's the opposite of what Spock did because he wasn't going to jettison Scotty into space. I mean, but you might as well obliterate the captain and his crew if they can't come through because they're all going to die anyway. Plus, Kirk is just a jerk. Yeah, there is some ABC going on here, but I don't know. The more and more we find out about this guy, I think he probably invented ABC. I just find it incredibly charming that Spock is basically like, no, don't. He, he, he will blow us up. Let's just let's skip to the part where you give us what we want. Because he's just going to do it. Like, Spock knows him so well. This episode, some people really love it. Some people really hate it. The people who hate it, hate it because it's very talky. Not a lot of stuff actually happens until the very end. It's really obvious that Flint is a strange person. There's a lot of mysteries about his house, like Spock finds what appear to be original Da Vinci works, but are uncatalogued. He finds things that seem to be written by Brahms, but are, again, uncatalogued and unknown and are much newer than they should be. Reyna has like a mysterious background because Kirk is, who obviously falls in love with her on site. Let's just, let's get that out of the way. This is all a lot about Kirk falling in love with yet another beautiful woman. He falls in love with her on site. But she doesn't seem to have a past, or at least her past doesn't really match what Flint has said. Flint introduces her as his ward, but he's clearly in love with her. What did you think about all the talking in this episode with like the ticking clock in the background? Neither of these episodes were good. And it's a real shame that this is, this is how we end the series. I think there are a couple of things to explain this. The first one is, so we are limping along to the end of this super ridiculous size season two of Batman 66. And so it nearly got canceled, just like Star Trek did, and barely managed to eke out a third season renewal. The third season of Batman 66 has the shows going from essentially an hour long, you know, to... Part, you know, two parts to every episode, one has a cliffhanger and one has a re- resolution. They go from that to self-contained 30-minute eps. I think it says a lot, and, and we kind of don't talk about this post-Lost, post-Sopranos. I think those are really the two. It's not that serialized television shows weren't happening. You know, you had these long story arcs especially in comedies throughout the 90s with must-see TV, and even before that. But week to week, storylines carrying over is a fairly new thing. And this is, of course, why The Next Generation works so well in syndication, because they're doing the same episodic structure. There may be overarching storylines, but the structure is episodic. I guess I should have started with The X-Files, which does manage to do an episodic structure while having that serialized story. 
And then you have shows like Lost and The Sopranos going full serialization. But we don't have that back in the 60s. What we have is, in Star Trek's case, a bunch of writers coming in and pitching ideas. It's for the same show. It's, for the, it's basically the same playset. I, I want to do this with the playset. Okay? And that's a problem. It's a problem with Batman, too. And the difference between Batman and Star Trek, this is where I wanted to go with this, the difference between Batman and Star Trek is Batman brings in Yvonne Craig for an entire season, not just one episode. Batman in season three brings in Batgirl, new, fresh, hip, cool. And that was enough to get it through the season, but it was canceled just like Star Trek was canceled after three seasons. There was nothing new to say. The novelty had worn off. And so, unlike a Western, which is comfort food, right? Like, we want that. We feel comforted by these characters. Putting us into this future where things are unknown isn't going to have the same level of comfort. Ironically, for people like you, it does, but, you know, y'all are weirdos. We just had our three Star Wars films, and we liked it until we had more, and we kind of wish we didn't. The other thing, because that was only one thing, the other (laughs) thing is we talked about this. I alluded to it, I think, in the last episode, but you and I talked about it later. This is a conversation that happened a lot around Ted Lasso. It's happened around a lot of the Netflix three and done shows. So the first season of a show is is proof of concept. It's establishing the characters, establishing the premise of the show, really understanding what the sandbox or the playset is. Season two is where the people behind the show and the people in front of the camera too demonstrate that they can make this a project of longevity. That there are arcs, there are relationships, there are things that the audience cares about. Because it's not new and novel. If you manage to do that, season three is the ultimate payoff. Where you see this finely oiled machine and people are able to just start doing stories and relying on characters and, and just paying off hard work that's been put into a show. Star Trek does not do this. Star Trek does not do this. That is why the quality of the show is so wildly uneven. I think that even by the time, from what I know, about the next generation, they have figured at least that much out. So even while it's very episodic, they understand what they're doing as a television show much more than the original series did. So it's kind of a shame that a lot of these episodes are not good. I wish I had something nice to say about them, but I don't. The nicest thing I do say is that it's going to be nice spending more time with these characters, watching the motion pictures that I've seen before, but being a little bit more invested in these people. And it's going to be interesting knowing that the next generation exists as a show because of, in some ways, the mistakes that TOS made. Like, all we have to do is not do that. It's like, a, it's like a type of blueprint. So, what do I think? That's what I think. 
That was a long walk, but you had a lot of really good points. The first season of Next Generation definitely maybe tries to be TOS a little bit too much, so it'll be really interesting to see what you think about that season. So there are really two twists that happen at the end of this episode, which is supposed to be what the entire episode was about. Let's talk about them one at a time. The first twist is that we turn. it turns out that Flint is human, but he's immortal. He's extremely old. He's over 9,000 years old. He says he was born somewhere in Mesopotamia back in the BC, that he was a soldier, that he found out that he couldn't die. And he's been living all this time, like educating himself, bettering himself, living all these different lives. He is Da Vinci. He is Brahms. He is Methuselah, which is where we get the, the title. And of course, Methuselah is a biblical reference because Methuselah is the longest lived person, according to the Bible, over 900 years old. So what you're telling me, what Star Trek is telling me, Edward Cullen, right? (laughs) At the end of the series, he turns Bella into a vampire, which is an approach that Methuselah did not have. But basically, the way to understand this episode is to imagine that Edward Cullen Dates teenage girl after teenage girl after teenage girl because he goes to high school. He's like over 100 years old and he's still going to high school to meet women. Think about that. Just think real long and hard about that, okay? But, you know, he's going to live, he's going to grow old, or they're going to grow old. He's not, and they're going to die. And then one day, Edward Cullen's going to figure out how to make robots. He's going to learn to make the perfect android for his wildest dreams, and she'll be clumsy and fall down a lot, which is really stupid because she's an android, and you don't have to put that in there, but it's endearing. Yeah, that's what I think. This immediately, it was like, oh, this is what a vampire would do if the vampire did science. It's kind of like if Dracula and Frankenstein were one person and not Frankenstein at all. Right? Like if he had the science know-how of Frankenstein, but was nothing like that trash person. I am saying here that Dracula has the moral high ground (laughs) over Dr. Frankenstein. You're all getting that, right? I don't know if I've ever thought about that before. High ground. I mean, it is important to know that you're worse than a vampire. I guess my question is, before we get really into the Reina stuff, Is this episode telling us that in order to have the genius of Da Vinci and Brahms, you need like a couple centuries to like really get a running start at it? And two, does Flint as a character earn the idea that he is so old and so lonely because he's so smart? Or does his obsession with making the perfect woman, which again, we'll talk about, does that Does that feel earned or unearned by this character by the end of the episode? If you ask Plato, you would have to live that long to be that smart, unless you're Plato, ironically. But Plato, you know, and and some of the other Greeks relied on the idea of anamnesis, right? That, That it's all in there. It's all in your brain noggin. And the gods put it there and... Y'all had like some good play times before you were born, knowing all the stuff, and they knew all the stuff, and you played catch with Zeus, and it was great, and he was like, okay, son, I'm going to send you into the real world, and you're not going to remember any of this, but dad, nope, shut up, it's worth it, I don't understand why it's humanity, bye. 
And that's the process, right? The process of living is the process of remembering things that are already in that's already in your head through experience, right? It's like the it's like the real version of predestination. <laughs> yeah, it's not like that Puritan aspartame that'll rot your brain, give you brain lesions, and make you accuse everybody of being a witch. I know this was another long answer that that feels like I'm not answering the question, but I am. So the answer is yes. You know, if you took any kind of platonic philosophical idea, that would definitely be supported. The idea that that geniuses are able to access more of those things more quickly than most people, but at some point, it, this is to use another metaphor, the house always wins, you know, in a normal lifetime, but he's he's cracked the code or been lucky enough to just stay alive, so he's figured it all out. So I guess the question is, what's the consequence of figuring it all out? You could say, because Kirk, Spock, and Bones, you know, their dumb, dumb, youthly, middle-aged brains can't possibly understand what he's saying. There's actually a case to be made here that Methuselah is so smart, his system of ethics is so higher order that what seems to be wrong to Kirk, Spock, Bones isn't. Maybe he's developed a better sense of ethics and morals. Maybe this is the correct thing to do. I mean, I don't think it is, but I, it, it, that's the answer to the question. If you, if you think that's it, I don't know. I mean, I guess the easy answer is he does go crazy and starts doing mean stuff, and that's really what it is, I suppose. But there's another way to answer it. This episode doesn't seem to be interested in any of that. It's Kirk's going to fall in love with an android girl. All right. You know, it's funny. While we're talking about this, I'm thinking about the next episode we're going to talk about. And there seems to be some themes through both these episodes. One of them is that both of them are about away missions gone wrong with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. The other themes seem to be loneliness, like the idea of being lonely, especially over long periods of time, and being cynical, right? Because Methuselah or Flint or whatever you want to call him, he's been alive so long that he's very cynical because nobody exists that's like him, right? And so he doesn't seem to have any purpose in life. So he's convinced himself that the purpose is to make another person like him, literally through the form of Reyna. And this is where we get into the pastiche of this episode. This Reyna storyline where he literally is trying to make the perfect woman and we see at the very end, all of his past failures, right? We see Reina number eight, Reina number seven, like all these different Reinas that have obviously not worked, which is disturbing and kind of reminds me of Ex Machina a little bit. The pastiche here is that this is Pygmalion, right? This is the sculptor trying to make the perfect woman and then falls in love with it. This is the Forbidden Planet, which Gene Roddenberry actually said he wanted to do a Forbidden Planet style storyline. And we all know that the Forbidden Planet is Prospero and Miranda, except for in this case, Prospero's in love with Miranda and Miranda isn't his daughter, but she's also kind of his daughter because he's her maker. It all gets a little bit messy here. And as you said, this is also Bride of Frankenstein, right? This is the idea of making a bride for a creature that is not human because that is the only possible being that could understand him. So we have Prospero and Miranda. And a few days from now, if you continue listening to our 13 Days of X-Men podcast, you will get not one, but two Calibans. Whole set! Woo! We did it!
Tessa doesn't think that's funny. That's funny. That's good jokes. I think M4 is Caliban in this episode. M4 is like a a cross between a Dalek and the Imperial torture droid from Star Wars. <laughs> M4 does not seem happy to be there or part of it at all. And there are two different versions of M4 because the first one gets destroyed Just by Reyna. There were many more. But yeah, what do you think about this Reyna? Like, she's, she, he's trying to create the perfect woman to fall in love with him. And part of the problem is, is because she's an android, he can't, he can make her perfect, right? He can make her a brilliant woman. He can make her a beautiful woman. She has this awesome sparkly silver dress with like a cape situation going on, but he can't make her love him. Like, that seems to be like the problem. And then, of course, because it's a Miranda storyline, as soon as she sees, the first other man that she sees, right, Kirk, she immediately, like, imprints on him, which is this whole other problem. What do you think about the the Pygmalion, Bride of Frankenstein, the Tempest of it all? I think you know what's about to happen. This is just the idiom of the episode. Do you remember the other day when we were talking about Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails? Oh, God. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. So we were talking about how Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross are now the the Danny Elfmans of the composing world, and they're super good and super in high demand. And I think the reason for that is that Trent Reznor learned something eventually. I would say maybe 99 or 2000, I don't remember. The Fragile, it was a double album. That's really the first time he started experimenting with not making everything louder than everything else, which is also a Jim's Diamond Meatloaf song. Pastiche can be done well if the parts are balanced, but if you go, hey, we're going to do seven things and all of them are going to be turned up to a 10, that's up to a 70 and now my ears are bleeding and I'm dead. Please don't do that to me. It, It is bad pastiche and that's what Star Trek seems to almost always do. If they're doing one thing, it's probably pretty good. If they're doing two things, flip a coin. But once they start doing more than two things, nope. But what do you think about the ethics of what's going on here? Because honestly, this episode seems a little ambivalent about what Flint is doing. This this episode is not interested in talking about... This is not Philip K. Dick. This episode has no interest in the android's soul except for as a plot point. I will accept this as a fridge. I will not accept this as any sort of discourse on androids. She is a plot point. That is all. For me, I I mostly agree with you, but I think there's one redeeming scene in this episode, and it's the final scene right before she dies, unfortunately, and it's not because she dies, and it's not because of Flint and Kirk getting into a fight where they fling each other all over the room. The, The scene that I'm talking about is when they're fighting, and she has this conflict, right? Because Flint is her creator. She's like, he's like her father figure. And Kirk is this man that she's fallen in love with. And so these are all very new emotions for her. She's an android. She doesn't realize that humans are basically a bundle of messy, conflicted emotions walking around in a meat suit. And so she's having this moment of crisis and she tells them to stop. And, and they're both like doing the lassie thing where they're like, choose me, choose me. And she says, no, I choose, right? I am the one who chooses. To me, that is a really interesting moment where she realizes her agency, right? Like this conflict births this new 
consciousness, if you want to talk about it that way, in which she's able to recognize herself as an I, who's apart from Kirk and Flint, and is able to make decisions based on that. Unfortunately, because this is episodic television and because we can't have women with agency, android or not, she immediately dies from it, right? Even Spock says it. She's like, she discovered agency and then she died because she couldn't handle it. The way you explain it, this is some sort of weird Lacanian mirror phase. You know, instead of the baby finding out, oh, who's that? Oh, that's me. Oh, that's what I look. Oh. I am a that, and my mom's a different that. Ooh, <laughs> right? And, and so that's, that's, you know, developmentally, that's one of the first very, very human things that we do, as if animals don't do that. I mean, you're, you're really trying to push me into this android discourse. The whole point of do androids dream of electric sheep is can androids have empathy? Because empathy is what makes you human. Not cells, not mitochondria, not blood, not corpuscles, not neurons, which are electronics. You know, robots have those. It's not any of those things. A soul, right? Because the idea is only humans have souls. And nobody that doesn't have a soul can feel love. And so if a pet's ever loved you, and you say that that pet doesn't have a soul, you might not have one yourself. Smile. Now, so what you're telling me is she would totes pass the Voight-Kampf test in Blade Runner because to love means she has the possibility of empathy because love is a, you know, one of the most base human emotions. It's right up there with hate. Really? And so if you can feel those things, if it's not a program and you can feel it, which is what we see in that moment, then she must be human. And Kirk says that. Right. And I mean, so this this like tidies up Dick's whole dilemma. We don't need Blade Runner. We could just watch this and be good with it. Now, the unfortunate thing is what this episode does seem to tell us is that an android body, a machine body cannot host humanity. Whatever we want. If we want to, in this case, shorthand humanity as a soul, we could do that. An android body cannot host a soul. So once that soul springs into being or comes alive or, or does some sort of Lacanian development, the body can't handle it, so poof, it dies. Or I suppose you could be totally sexist about it and say that that's what women do. They can't really feel emotions, and if they do, they die or go crazy, and that's what hysteria is. Boom! Yeah, it's kind of hard not to see all the metaphors here, right? Between the Pygmalion storyline and the she got so emotional that she died from it, it's it's really difficult to not see this as a metaphor for women, especially in science fiction. You know, in the Star Wars, when the character dies because she got too sad. <laughs> she was so sad, and so she died from it. I just want to point out that in your little monologue about do androids stream of electric sheep, you went from like the interpretation that most people have to it to like the galaxy brain interpretation in like two moves. Like people are like, this book is about do androids have souls or can machines have empathy? And people who have like galaxy brained it are like, oh, no, this book is about do humans have empathy? We just talked about. Methuselah living for thousands upon thousands of years, and that's 
what increases your intelligence, age and experience, right? I read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in 1999. (laughs) I can make that move in two moves because I've been thinking about it a lot. And, you know, this is actually a really good way to explain somebody like Methuselah, who lives through the Renaissance and lives through whatever time Brahms lived through. Just the idea that you know things, but then your exposure to other humans who have other ideas and that idea of synthesis, which is another really interesting idea because he's teaching her things. He is imparting things to her. This will never be what he wants because what he will never get from her is synthesis. She brings nothing new to the table because she is his creation. The reason we're able to have these really good discussions about Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep is I had my own knowledge built on experience. You have your own knowledge built on expertise and they play pretty well together. But Dude was never going to get that. This was always doomed to failure. I don't think he knew that yet, though. Seems weird that he wouldn't. Is this denial? It could be denial. There are three short things I want to say before we move on. The first is, we should have known Reyna was a android the entire time, because her last name is Kopek, which is an anagram of Kopek. Literally, they just switched the K in the C. After Carol Kopek, who introduced us to the term robot, There are two things that happen at the end of this episode that are interesting. One, Flint discovers, Bones tells Flint that he's dying. Somehow leaving Earth and all those magnetic fields and so on have actually started to age him. He's he's going to actually live a normal lifespan and die. He's no longer immortal like he was on Earth. And he immediately tells Bones that he's going to spend the rest of his life bettering the human race or like helping the human race. Is this a good place scenario where actually death gives you meaning, gives you purpose? And then we never saw him again. I don't care. Like, I, I, don't, I don't understand the whole, like, how long ago did he leave Earth? How long has he been decaying? He's like 900 and something years old. How long is it going to take for him to decay? This is just like, a, well, we couldn't just leave him there because that doesn't say anything good about us as characters, I, I guess. So, I, I don't know. He's going to die. No further questions. This is over. The last thing that I will say, and it is an ethical dilemma for us here at the end of this episode, we get a very sweet and yet very disturbing insight into Spock. This is definitely a dobbler dahmer situation in which Kirk, who is understandably very upset by the death of Reyna, he's sitting in his quarters, visibly distraught. He just keeps saying over and over to Spock, I wish I could forget, I wish I could forget. And he puts his head down and he falls asleep and Spock and McCoy have a short exchange about what's going on. And McCoy says, you know, oh, I I wish he could forget, you know, love is really hard. And then he leaves. And Spock, who either because he loves Kirk or because he does not understand fundamentally what the problem with this is, because he's a Vulcan and not a human, mind melts with Kirk and causes him to forget, is what we're told at the end of this episode. Well, I want to say there's nothing wrong with it, but I know that's not true, which I think is probably Spock's position. It's wrong, but I don't know why, so I'm going to do it. Because the benefits outweigh the drawbacks. I mean, I can tell you why it's wrong. He is, ex- he is tampering with Kirk's memories, with his consciousness, with his, the, the, 
boundaries between him and Spock in a way that is problematic, especially because Kirk didn't explicitly ask him to do it. Kirk did say that he wanted to forget, but this is a consent issue, right? Like, did he actually mean, I want you to go into my brain and erase it? Yeah, but I don't, I don't think it's like that. I think that, I get what you're saying, but I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. What I think it's more like is saying, okay, bro's going to have to deal with it. Bro's going to have to do some major like trauma processing, like probably going to have to do some blocking out, some, you know, that kind of thing. And, or he could be fine when he wakes up from this nap. Could be doing him a solid. I guess it depends on what you think about the morality of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Because that's what this is. Ah, yeah. See, here's the difference, though. Like, yes, you're looking at it like one-to-one laterally, right? Because remember, the android's dead. What Joel objects to is that he, he... was deleted from her mind without his consent, right? That's what's happening there. That's a consent issue. You can't just delete a part of somebody because that is, that is exactly that, unless you don't think that's a problem. So I think that's the real issue. It's the violation of the agency of the person being deleted from the first person's memory. But she's an android and she's not there, so it doesn't matter. So we're just back to the idea of is it okay for Spock to help his friend process in the most likely way that he would process? I understand why you say it's wrong. I'm just not, I don't know, I'm not concerned. But I mean, this is sympathy empathy, right? What you're actually arguing is that Spock would not pass the Voight-Kampf test. He can, he can try to see it from Kirk's point of view, but he can't imagine what Kirk is feeling. And because he can't imagine what Kirk's feeling, all he can do is see his best bro in pain and know that he can fix it in the way that Kirk wants it to be fixed. It's a, it's a lack of empathy, I guess, more than anything else. See, I don't see it as a lack of empathy because I don't think he would have done it if he had a lack of empathy. I think... I I don't want to get into a huge discussion of this. I'm thinking of a very specific scene from Legion, actually. I just don't think Spock understands how to act on his empathy, except for in this one particular way, which seems morally dubious. Since we've now fully gotten off the rails, this will be the longest episode of Sam Watches Star Trek. Let's move on to All of Our Yesterdays, which is the 23rd and penultimate episode of the third season of TOS. Written by Jean Lizette Aresti and directed by Marvin Chomsky. We've talked about him before. It was first broadcast March 14th, 1969. Its repeat broadcast on September 2nd, 1969 was the last official telecast of the series to air on NBC. The Enterprise is monitoring a star that is about to go supernova. Worried about the non-spacefaring inhabitants of the planet Sarpedon, Kirk, McCoy, and Spock, once again, beam down to investigate, only to find that the planet is devoid of life except for one strange librarian, Mr. Atos. Mr. Atos, mistaking them for inhabitants of the planet, insists that they flee the coming destruction in the same mysterious manner that the rest of the inhabitants did, through time travel into the planet's past. It's another time travel app! We're ending on time travel app! Kirk is accidentally sent back to a 17th century type place where he is imprisoned as a witch, and Spock and Bones are sent back to an ice age. I know you're going to want to talk about time travel. 
Let's hear it. So one thing that's always fascinated me about time travel is thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics states that energy is a closed system. You cannot make it. You cannot destroy it. What you can do is change its form. And when you do so, that you get the second law, which is entropy. You do, in that usage of energy, of heat, to make energy transfer from one form to another, you, you lose a bit. And the third law has to do with, you know, the more entropy happens, the more you approach zero, but you never get there. The point is, energy, heat, matter, however you want to put it, is a closed system, which I, I'm no physicist, but if you think about the Big Bang and expansion and contraction, it is the system getting larger because it's more porous, there's more space between the matter and then contracting. What fascinates me about this in time travel is I'm pretty sure time travel can't exist because if the laws of thermodynamics say it is a closed system, what happens when you insert more of it into a closed system, which you can't do? So it's impossible. And if you were born, right? You were born, somebody's, you know, two people got together and four people got together, right? So one thing that we know about the process of thermodynamics and through the laws is that the energy is transformed and passed down. So if I have parts of the energy, the most simplistic way to look at this, if I have parts of the energy from my parents, who have it from their four parents, who have it from their eight parents, and so on and so forth, if I go back to a time when that energy already exists, you can't do that. That's what thermodynamics says, really. And so if you're looking at that closed causal loop system of time travel, this doesn't really get into quantum. But if you do that, it just does not work. And I was thinking about this during the whole thing about, it reminded me of when Spock and Bones go to the, the Ice Age and Spock catches feelings for this girl, which is highly illogical. <laughs> and there's all sorts of issues about being prepared, right? Because that's the big thing. The librarian's trying to prepare their cellular structure to survive in a time in the past. Now, that could be some sort of thermodynamic you know, mumbo-jumbo magic kind of thing to make what I just said not so, but I doubt it. This episode made me mad because it kind of seemed like somebody figured out that we can't actually just send people in the past for reasons that might involve thermodynamics. And like, oh, we'll just create a machine where we fix that. And oh God, what happens if we don't? A Vulcan catches feelings. No, the universe folds in, folds in on itself and everybody <laughs> dies. That's the consequence. I don't like this episode. Fair enough. The machine you're talking about, the Atavacron, is that's the machine with all the lights and stuff. Zerabeth says that it changes brainwaves and physiology. That's about all she'll say on the subject, and it's why she can't come back with them, is because her brainwaves and physiology have been adjusted to the time that she's in, but they have to go back because theirs haven't been prepared. Interesting note, Atavacron is actually an album by Alan Holdsworth. He actually named an album after this. 
and it includes a track called All of Our Yesterdays. Fun stuff. Anyway, what really made you mad about this episode besides the Clotus Loop? Is that, was that it? Yes, and it was boring. This is ranked one of the best episodes of TOS. I think it's interesting because if you look at this metaphorically, like if you take out, out the actual science of time travel here, I think that something is very interesting is being hinted at in metaphor. Because if you think about it, leaving a planet that is dying, right? Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, the Mark of Gideon. Well, why don't they just send out people? Why don't they send people off the planet to go colonize some uninhabited planets? That's expansionist, right? Which, and we can talk about all the Western expansion metaphors of that but it's also very utopian right like we're gonna go find a place to make life better right we're gonna we're gonna figure it out we're gonna make life better returning to the past in order to escape a cataclysmic climate issue seems like a metaphor for nostalgia versus utopia especially because mr atos is so insistent like look at your time periods pick the one that you want right This seems very much like Midnight in Paris, right? Like, go back to your favorite time period. You could live there. You could live there and escape the climate catastrophe. One of the reasons that I I do enjoy the physics that I know, I'm not interested in the math. I'm not a physicist. I'm never going to be. But as a metaphor, it's it's really interesting. I mean, the, the thermodynamic of it all works as a metaphor for what you're saying. Like, you cannot go back to a previous state. You can only move forward. That's what thermodynamics says about energy. We move in one direction. We will never approach zero, but we do have to move in a linear fashion. That is how it works. I've told you before, that's what utopian thinking is it is the ability to move forward, it is the recognition that we can only go in one direction. And metaphorically, we can go back in one direction. But as Billy Joel once said, the good old days weren't always good, and tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. Keeping the faith from the album Innocent Man. Well, and we get that from Kirk's storyline, which frankly wasn't that interesting, but it did give us this really interesting exchange between Kirk and this person who clearly went back to this 17th century style place and is now regretting it because Kirk has been imprisoned as a witch and he's afraid that if he reveals that he is someone who came back in time, that he will also be killed for being a witch. Turns out your favorite time in history had problems. No. You want to go back to the good old days? You want to go back to the 50s? Try the money laundering scheme you're working now to afford two houses and three families. Go on. Go back to the 50s. It won't work. Nostalgia is the enemy of utopia, right? It's the thing that prevents us from reaching utopia. Yeah. So I I found that metaphor to be interesting. But again, like you said, like the last episode, they don't really tease out the interesting parts as much as they could. That's basically the point of the time travel and Kirk storyline. Let's talk a little bit about Spock and Bones storyline which the episode spends more time on because it's way more interested in having Spock show emotions, which I think is why a lot of people like this episode. They like that we get to see Spock smile. We get to see Spock have an emotional response to something. We get to see Zerabeth, who is the character who's been banished at some point in this planet's history to this ice age. We get to see her take off her fur coat and have a fur bikini underneath. Who wouldn't catch feelings? So you remember in My Fair Lady, Eliza. 
Alien references. Right, right, right. I bet you didn't know there was another one. So Eliza is, how should we say, uncouth, uncultured, unaware that she is beautiful, which is what in fact makes her beautiful. All of these things. And so dude, Henry Higgins, is all like, I can make her better. I can make her this because this is what I think I want. Nay, it's what I know I want. I seem to remember him realizing at the end of the movie that that's not what he wants. Because he was attracted to a version of a person, to a person's real self. And when you try to mess around with that, they're not the same person. And what you thought you want, you can't stand it. How do you how do you like Spock being an insufferable mother head? You don't want that. You can't handle Spock having feelings. You are wrong. What do you think of the explanation that Bones gives us that the time travel has actually unlocked Spock's emotions and his savagery, like his his emotions come from this place of savage brutality, of possessiveness, of jealousy, because that's what his ancestors were experiencing at this point in time. Because as has been alluded to over the last few episodes, Spock's ancestors almost wiped themselves out because they had such unruly prejudices, emotions, and lo- they adopted logic in order to make peace and control those emotions. Did that make any kind of sense for you? Because for me, that was the weakest part of this episode. Okay, so you know that thing in political science where it's like, okay, you had a really good idea. I'm going to take that idea. That's really cool. Okay, and you had the second idea that you also think is really cool, and I think it's cool. All right, we're getting somewhere. Okay, now you've got this third idea, and I think it's really great too. Oh, are you going to take that idea too? Yes. All right, so all you got to do is implement that idea, that idea, that idea in this way, and everything will be great. Well, no, that's not what I was going to do. I was just going to like shuffle them together and take this part from this part and this part from this part and this part from this part. That sounds like Frankenstein. Yeah, he was a really smart guy. We should do that. No. That's what this sounds like to me. Like, if we take enough ideas from everything I've said in like the last hour and combine them, this totally makes sense as a storyline. But it shouldn't. What do you think of Zarabeth? who has probably the most infamous outfit in all of TOS. I, I, I remember when I had to, when I lived in Japan, in a part of Japan where you had to shovel the, the driveway and every couple of days the drifts would be, you know, four, four-ish feet. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't so cold. I mean, you know, you just go out there with my parka on, but halfway through I'm taking my jacket off and I'm just wearing a short sleeve shirt. So, I mean, like, I get it. It sounds impractical, but, you know, I've never been a fan of layers either. So I get it. I get it. (laughs) And I mentioned before one of the through lines between these two episodes is the idea of loneliness because McCoy implies that Zarabeth misleads them because she wants Spock to stay because she's lonely and women can't handle emotions, remember? And so she lies, you know, to get what she wants, which doesn't seem to actually be the case. It seems like she actually doesn't know what was happening. There's this interesting moment because even though we're told that Spock is experiencing all of these emotions because of the reversion pre-logic whole, that whole thing, 
there's this really interesting moment where Zarabeth tells him that she's lonely, right? She's been banished to this ice age. She's all alone. It's this soul-crushing loneliness. And she asks him if he's ever experienced something like that. And he says, yes. That doesn't appear to come from that place that, that we're talking about in terms of brutalism and unnatural emotions for Spock. Because he would have to have experienced that before he came there in order to be able to say the word yes. Now, I don't know if he would have said the word yes if he had been in his original state. I don't know if he would have copped to it, but it does genuine. they do genuinely seem to connect over this idea that he has been lonely, that being the way he is, being half Vulcan in this crew of all humans amongst people who fundamentally don't understand how he's trying to live his life has created this loneliness that he does feel under all these layers of logic. Remember an hour ago when I said good shows build characters in their second season and begin to use those characterizations for things? This is what happens when you don't do that. That's cool. That's a great idea. It's neat. It's based on nothing. That's not good writing. Well, I will say that the other thing that is a through line that we see here is that McCoy calls him, I think McCoy's trying to bait him here, and so he calls him a pointy-eared Vulcan or some other, one of those other like right, kind of racialized things that Bones occasionally calls him. And Spock like grabs him by the throat and says, I don't like that. I don't think I ever liked that. That actually is a through line. Bones has said stuff like this to Spock before, so this feels like it has more emotional payoff than it maybe the rest of the episode did. Yeah, it's like the first three times that Leia makes a joke about how Chewbacca's a carpet, and then later she loves the carpet. We do get more of Spock and McCoy's relationship in this because they're stranded together. It's interesting that Spock won't leave McCoy, right, in the ice drifts, because McCoy's all like, save yourself, Spock, and Spock like carries him into the cave after Zarabeth. We get a lot of tenderness from Spock. He's, see, he seems legitimately concerned at the beginning, because he's like, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what to do for him. But he's like trying his best. And then, of course, Spock is tempted to stay with Zarabeth when it becomes obvious that McCoy needs to go back. But when they discover that because both of them came through the Atavacron together, they both need to return together, he immediately says goodbye to Zarabeth and goes back with McCoy. First, they have to go back because of the thermodynamic thing. But it's ironic because they'd be dead because of the same thing. But whatever. I mean, like, of course, we get to see no payoff on that because the show's over. It'll be interesting to ha see how some of these relationship through lines get pulled through to the motion picture. My, um, I imagine they don't. So it'd be a nice surprise. Yeah, these characters, I like them more than I did before, but that's all I can get from this. I'm not going to read novels, fan fiction, the like. So this is close-ended. It's like, oh, great, I care about these characters and they have things about them. Well, that's it. I mean, I've been talking a lot about my interpretations of the episode, and I think that that comes from a lot of fandom. Like you said, this is episodic. And I think it comes from a lot of fandom, one, maybe watching everything several times, right, in order to glean all of these details. But two, I think it does come from a place where fandom are willing to to, they're willing to fill in the blanks, right? Because you almost have to in a show like this. If you care about it, you almost have to fill in the blanks when it comes to timelines and how these through lines work, even though they're not obvious, right? You almost have to really dig into the subtext to get these things. Well, it's a lot like what's happening when we're rewatching Lost. You claim to know the ending, 
But that's a very two-dimensional claim. You don't know all the things that went into the ending and what the ending signifies. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm very disappointed by that ending as well. But what's been interesting going back and watching it a second time is saying, okay, okay, all right, what you did there, I think you could pull through and earn that ending. Okay, I see that. You know, because it's an experience for me in, in doing that, seeing what I can glean and saying, okay, all right, you're on a short, nope, that wouldn't work, screw you, which is what Lost is doing. I, ultimately, two seasons in, my mind has not been changed because I can see them working toward more than one end, which proves to me exactly what I've always thought, which is they didn't know what they were doing. They were just doing it. You know, there's, there's clearly differences between this show and that show and the experience and the related fandom. I, I'm not going to do this kind of work. Not even with Star Wars. I don't. You know, I do read some of those novels. I do play the video games, but I don't give them a whole lot of credence. They're just interesting. But you understand I, that yeah, I mean, no, no, no. I get the whole idea of the, the Star Trek mythos because that's what it is. And, and I respect, no, I respect it. I think it's great. It's not for me, but it doesn't have to be. So, you know, I, I do come at it from a different perspective. And I think you've seen that from the last however long it's been we've been recording this episode. <laughs> well, I mean, over six episodes. This is called Sam Watches Star Trek because, you know, it's interesting to get the perspective of someone who isn't as invested in the mythos, you know, looking at this from a different perspective. All right, that's it for the original series. How does it feel, Sam? Do I get a pony? <laughs> What's my prize? Do you want a Tribble or that unicorn dog from season one? I'd like to live in a utopian society, please. <laughs> All right, we are taking a short break on the Watches podcasts for the holidays slash Tessa really needs to finish her dissertation draft. But we will be back with more Tessa Watches Lost on January 18th. After we finish the third season of Lost, Sam Watches Star Trek will return with episodes on the Star Trek films. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. And you can find me at Swayla Tessa. Swayla is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Until next time, live long and prosper. <laughs>